I believe life is one big spiritual creative experience and everything that we do, whether it's start a business, write a book, fall in love, or I don't know, pull a bunch of tarot cards, has a little spiritual lesson wrapped up inside of it. I'm obsessed with trying to understand the mysteries of the world from the arcane to the mundane and unboxing as many spiritual lessons as I can. And on the 12th house, we're going to explore all of that. So let's get into it together. I once heard about a way to find your natural voice. It was like, take a deep breath in, hold it, and then like drop yourself down. And that's your natural voice. Because I mean, obviously, I was like just talking up here before. Oh, I like that. It would probably be a good exercise in dance or find your real body or find anything to relax you into the moment. I used to spend like an hour warming up for class when I was not answer. And I would come into class with my voice like this. We would always t- sit in a circle and talk about like our positive thought of the day. And then we'd go into class. And then by the end of class, I swear to God, my register was like so much deeper, so much earthier. That's very cool. I know all these vocal warmups that I sometimes bust out for speaking. They're so, they're very silly. Like zip, zap, zap. We'll save that for the green room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, all right. I guess we should get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. This is a very special edition, a monumentous occasion, dare I say. A first time. I'm very excited for today. Me too. We've literally been planning for months. And dear listener, welcome. We, we're going to do something we've never done before in the 12th house. And that is, we're going to make a series. And by we're going to, I mean, we've already made it. And we're really excited about it. We are exploring the concept of killing the starving artist. This is going to be a multi-part series on the 12th House podcast. And we're going to just, we're going to explore a couple of things. In part one today, we're going to talk about how to move past the mindset of being a creative and not making money. The problem with the girl boss archetype and the black and white thinking around your one or the other. And we're going to get into the history of selling out and the starving artists, slacker culture. We're going to get into all that and more today. And throughout this whole series, we really wanted to explore this idea of how do I get paid, (laughs) remain in artistic integrity, and I don't know, also becomes a little aware, like a little bit more self-aware around how I operate and move in the world and think about getting paid for what it is that I'm here to do. Yeah. Jury's still out if we figure that out, but it's an exploration and we're going to take you with us. So let's go. Okay. So why do we want to kill the starving artist archetype? Tell me everything. (laughs) I know. It's kind of aggressive. It's kind of like, do we need to homicide? Maybe we just want to put the starving artist like, you know, in the corner for a second (laughs) or um, on pause just for a moment. I don't know. Katie, do you know a lot of artists, like a lot of creative people? Tons. Right. We both do. We both have had lots of experience with really creative people. For you, is the starving artist archetype one that you see a lot in the creatives that you know? Yes and no. I think it's shifting. And I'm curious if that's been the case with you. And I wonder if part of that is age. I wonder if it's timing. I wonder if it's the collective energy around us, but it's definitely one I have experienced in the course of my life. And it's one that I think I 
experience being on the outside of, of like wishing I was an artist completely, but I'm like, oh, I have a full-time job, so <laughs> I'm not actually an artist, you know? Yeah. That's my biggest experience of feeling it. Yeah. I think before we even get into the starving artist archetype, it's just bears repeating. If you haven't listened to our episodes on archetypes, that we're going to talk about this concept of archetype embodiment. And basically the idea uh, was brought to the Western world by Carl Jung, but has been in indigenous populations and cultures for much longer. But there are these archetypes that exist throughout time and space that are a collective universal language. And no matter where we are in the world, there are archetypes that we can all recognize that there are certain traits. Archetypes are characters that we read about in books and that we see on TV and, in fact, in the people that are around us. And we all contain infinite archetypes that we can pull up at any given time, but we we tend to have, like, you know, a primary archetype that we embody. And the starving artist archetype is like, gosh, it's as old as art. You know, the original artists um, were indebted to their patrons, not original artists, but people who uh, we study as classical artists were indebted to patrons to pay for their life. It wasn't a job that was like, I don't know, like being a merchant or a mercenary. It was a job that you're dedicated to beauty and truth, not making good money and wearing nice clothes and living in a like, I don't know, designer uh, chateau. That's not what the artist traditionally is recognized as. And in general, artists, I would say as an archetype are not, uh, they're not sort of pigeonholed into like caring a lot about money. But the starving artist archetype, I would say is like an extreme version of that. The starving artist loves and believes that to make good art, they have to suffer. And that to be successful, they can't be commercially successful. In fact, that being commercially successful means that they're a sellout. And while we're not all like, you know, painting frescoes on ceilings of churches, you know, for a pittance, in this day and age, I think the starving artist archetype kind of persists in any creative or intuitive field where we sort of have this association, untrue perhaps, that if we do what we love, then we're going to have to suffer and not get paid for it, or we're going to not get acknowledged for it, that we can't make good money. And also do something that nurtures our soul, that we'll have to settle in one way or another, or that we just have to deal with not making money, or we have to deal with having a really shitty job that sucks our soul out. Am I missing anything about the starving artist? Well, it's interesting because you asked me about my experience with it, like currently in my life as a grown up. Yeah. But I realized as you were speaking, this was so in the media that I grew up in. There's a million examples that we could think of, of things we watched in our formative years, but one really comes to mind for me, and it speaks to the history that you brought up as well, which is I have a real, you can call it an obsession with the musical Rent. <gasps> have we spoken about this? Oh, we've talked about it. Yes. Yes. I didn't think that this is where this was going to go, but I'm here for it. Yeah. That's such a good example. Of the starving well, artist archetype. and exactly, and it's a remake of La Boheme, mm -hmm. which is also a great example of the starving artist archetype, just from a little bit older, a wee bit older. The Bohem, La Boheme, it's an opera. I remember really getting into Rent and trying to sort out what 
was happening because I was so young mm-hmm. and maybe too young. Yeah, some would say definitely too young. <laughs> I didn't understand. I was like, "What? He can't sell his his movie to the TV and make money." Like I I actually didn't understand it because I wasn't I didn't grow up with artists. I didn't understand the concept of selling out really. I was and and that was my first experience of it. And it's yeah, it's kind of ripe for the picking of being an example of this. Oh my gosh, that's such a good example. Honestly, when you were talking, I thought you were going to reference the classic early aughts film Ever After with Drew Barrymore. That's a take on Cinderella, but also includes a cameo from a Leonardo da Vinci character. And he sort of like stumbles about the movie being a poor, starving artist and being a little kooky and wonderful. He, you know, paints the picture of her, sketches the sketch of her that's in the beginning and the end of the movie. But you're totally right. Like all throughout media where we basically see this archetype sort of like reinforced over and over and over again, that basically you can be noble and poor, or you can be a sellout and make money. And there's no in between. And we know like, obviously, either or thinking is a red flag in general in any part of our lives that like, there's probably some nuance and some gray that we could acknowledge there. But I don't know, I totally as a dancer, I remember when So You Think You Can Dance really got big when I was in high school and then in college. And where I went to school, I went to dance school, I went to art school. And there was one girl who auditioned for So You Think You Can Dance in my whole school. and everyone was just like, oh, it's so, that's so embarrassing. That's so like lowbrow. It's so commercial. I can't believe that she would go audition for that. Like so embarrassing. We're better trained than that, which is extremely problematic. But another great example of the starving artist archetype showing up and honestly ruining the party and not being that fun. It's a stigma. It's a bit mean, but it's so interesting to really think back. There's so many examples of this. Yeah, it's this just pervasive idea. And I don't know, I think in like our modern age, we're getting a little bit more flexible and fluid, especially as like independent creators have more platforms to make their work and to be seen and discovered. And there are like fewer gatekeepers, but there are still gatekeepers that exist in the world. And when we say art or creativity, we're saying that as sort of like a blanket statement of like making the thing you want to make. So that could be your art could be like what you write. It could be a podcast you record. It could be the somatic work that you do with your clients. It could be the way that you coach someone or that you consult someone. Just put that little asterisk next to art. But I think the starving artist archetype, I see it so much in people that I work with where it's a limiting, it limits their imagination and their creativity around how they can use their gifts. They think I either have to be good, quote unquote, or I have to betray myself and make money. And that's just not true. I mean, at least not 100% true. So our goal of this series is to flesh out this idea of the artist archetype in our own minds and to make them a more colorful, dynamic, three-dimensional, four-dimensional, five-dimensional being you know, show you artists who make bank, who make really good money doing what they love. Artists who are multifaceted, who don't just stick to one thing or even like claim the title of artists. Creators and artists who aren't tortured necessarily to make good work, who don't have to put themselves through pain or to dig up pain in order to be prolific. Artists who are interested and interesting without money or without relationship dramatics because so often having a dramatic relationship to money or dramatic relationship to the people around you can feel interesting and can make you interesting and can also be something that inspires art. And to replace the idea of selling out because 
it's really not what we think it is, or at least from where I sit. So that's the goal of this conversation and this exploration. And I think by the end of this, you're going to hopefully be inspired to make your own art and to do it however you damn please and to make some sweet, sweet money doing it. What's the point? Why, 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 why be interested in creativity and doing things? The point is to be a prolific person in the world. If we unearth our identity and our truth and our sacred work with every single thing that we make, whether it is a tweet or an X, I don't know, an X note, or a book that we write or a poem, then the more authentically we make these things and the more we show up to make them, the more we practice making them, the more that we'll know the truth of who we are or we'll excavate the truth of who we are. I mean... What more could you want? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do you ever wonder just like why you feel compelled to make things? I did for a long time. And then I stopped wondering because I, I think I just accepted that's the way that we're wired. I think we're meant to. Mm-hmm. I think it feeds us and it gives us momentum. And, it, and I think it's how we connect. Mm-hmm. It's what keeps your life interesting, but not interesting in a distracted way. Not like, you know, playing video games. Not that playing video games are bad, but just like in a not present way, instead of distracted, it's more like just engaged. I think the process of making things keeps me engaged. There's a, I mean that there's so many Joan Didion quotes around, she doesn't know what she thinks until she writes. And I think that that's, that really sums up the creative process for a lot of people. I know even when I write the holisticism top note of the email every couple of weeks, like sometimes things come out that I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't really know that that was there. And that's how I felt about that. But okay, great. Yeah. It makes me think of, oh, several years ago, I heard this interview with Rain Wilson and Deepak Chopra, and he was asking this exact question, like, how do you define happiness? And Deepak Chopra's answer was as divine discontent. And then he went on to say, because it leaves room for the creative impulse. And that always just sat right with me. Like mm-hmm. it sat correctly in me where I was like, I really feel what he means of we need a little bit of discontent to always be in process, to always be wrestling with something keeps us to your point. It keeps us going. It keeps things interesting and it, it feeds us in a way. Yeah. There's this concept called the God wound. It's a philosophy or it's a way of thinking of making sense of the world, meaning making system, that we are God separate from itself. And our life is God trying to recognize itself in the world. Like if we, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind wiped God's brain and we are God, it's kind of like intense. All we're trying to do is like find that those moments of divinity. And I think that like the creative process it offers a lot of fertile ground to, to, to find divinity, but also to your point, seeing other people, like really witnessing and experiencing and empathizing with like humanity. It brings us back to our humanity and also to our divine nature, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think you speak so well to being squiggly brained and making sure that by knowing that or by knowing different things about your patterning and self-awareness, you can become a clear channel. That's something that you taught me that I that has been very helpful as a framework to look at this. And I think that plays directly into, into creativity because 
it's that sort of connection where you get into flow, you know, where you get into that's what you're actually saying when you're, when you mentioned not knowing where that came from at the beginning of the newsletter, you were in flow. That's, that's why. And I think we can't necessarily control that. We can't necessarily make that happen. We can create the conditions for it and try to make ourselves as clear of a channel as you say as possible. But I think that's what makes this so special and unpredictable at the same time. Yeah. And if the creative process, whatever it is, or the intuitive or the channeling process, like basically illuminates truth to us, then we want to try and I think touch that as often as we possibly can or or getting that as often as we can. So when we say like, you know, one of the operating principles of of this series is that the goal of anyone listening to it is to be a prolific creator, is to be someone who makes things forever and ever and ever and ever and keeps growing and expanding. And I think the the point being is not because I just want to like accumulate <laughs> um, you know, a, a gigantic library of work to stand on top of on my deathbed, but because the more I make, the more practice I get, the more practice, the deeper I can go into like finding myself, finding the truth, finding what I think and like experiencing and, and you know, not to get existential, but that's like arguably why a lot of us are here. And then to the point about connection, I think the more that you make, the more that you can share and then, you know, the way I look at the creative process, I led this thing called Creative Underdogs and I made a positive feedback loop for it where it started with making space. So first you have to make space, then you have to gather inspiration. So gathering, and then you have to try things like throw a bunch at the wall, see what sticks, making things. And then very intentionally, I put share as the end of the creative process as part of it, because that's when you can connect with other people. That's when you can get feedback and iterate. And that's really, I think, why we're doing it. And, and thus holding things in so close until they're able to be seen by a mass or undone. It gets into perfectionism territory, but it doesn't allow the, like, it's part of it. It needs a release. So then you can just start the process, the feedback loop over again. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. In a way, like our starving artist, for a lot of us, I think does embody that prolific nature of wanting to make things, of feeling compelled to make things, even when it's not healthy or like when there's no money to do it. Um, the starving artist sort of figures out a way to continue to, I don't know, pay to get their pictures printed, even if they can only afford dollar pizza. So there's some stuff that like when we look at the starving artist, we said we maybe just want to like not go full murder on it. We kind of want to just like put it in a timeout for a second. There's some stuff that the starving artist totally gets right that we're like, yeah, those are like awesome attributes that we probably do want to take with us as creatives or that are, you know, important to us as creatives and probably part of partially why we embody that starving artist archetype. So the starving artist archetype to me, like it really gets right this idea that we need to be careful not to lose sight of the plot, like that we need to stay in touch with our reason for creation and not get blinded by, I don't know, flashy, I don't know, fame or making a bunch of money or being renowned or something else that strokes our ego. Yeah. Like sometimes the ego can be good because it can it can be a very motivating factor. Mm -hmm. But you have to be very discerning. It can be motivating until it's a distraction and you lose the plot completely. So 
it's a real like slowing down and self-honesty that I think has to occur. Yeah. I have said many times before, I was a dancer and I had this experience with a choreographer that, you know, when you're, um, there's not that many dance jobs and typically to get a job in the world, you go and you apprentice for free. So you dance for free for a company. And sometimes you'll dance for them for a couple of weeks. Sometimes you'll dance for a couple of years for free as an apprentice. It means you show up to every rehearsal, you learn everyone's roles and you just, you say thank you. <laughs> and I had this choreographer who I was obsessed with when I was in college. He was the only person I wanted to dance for. And he had a notoriously small company and he was notoriously difficult. And after I graduated, I ended up auditioning to become an apprentice and I you know, beat out hundreds of other people and got to be got the pleasure of being an unpaid apprentice. So I went and I apprenticed every day for six months for four hours a day. And at the end of my apprenticeship, a woman was leaving the company. So they were going to replace her. And that was like, oh my God, this is how I get in because there's only so much budget, right? So he made me audition with everyone else. And the day after the audition, his company director called me and was like, I'm so sorry, but we're going to go with a man. We're actually not replacing any, uh, not, no women. And it was horrible. It was the worst. I cried. I cried. It was awful. And for like a couple years after that, his little face was in my head for anything that I did. Every single audition I went to, I was like, I'm going to show that motherfucker (laughs) that he missed out on me. Like I would see him at gallery openings. And if I knew I was going to see him, I would like dress really well. It wasn't like he was going to hit on me or anything. I just wanted him to be like, wow, I really made a mistake. And I really wanted to prove to him, like my ego was like, I'm going to prove that I'm worth it. And he had a moment of like humanity with me, uh, some random thing that we were both at. His mom had died and I said, I was sorry that that happened to him. And we just talked and he cried. And it was like all the ego, everything that I like wanted to prove to him. I just realized he's a person, not a God that I had, you know, worshiped for the last couple of years. And everything in my body was just like, oh, I don't really care. Like, I don't really actually care that much. And I actually like stopped dancing professionally shortly after that because I realized that a lot of what I was doing was just to prove other people wrong. And it wasn't because it really, made me happy. Like what made me happiest was just taking class. It wasn't performing um, or getting jobs. It was just dancing. I feel like I wasted years of my life chasing that little ego bunny for a while, but it was an important lesson to learn. I don't know. Wow. That's an incredible story and that you got to have that moment with him. I think anytime we put someone on a pedestal in a work context, in any context, it's a bad situation. (laughs) Yeah. And getting yourself uncoupled from that is tricky and a little bit uncontrollable. And you're, in my experience of it, my ego often wants that moment where of redemption Mm -hmm. of like, I just want to redeem myself with you. I want you to see now, look at this and know, you know, and it's, that's all ego, even though it's very true and very human. And I remember saying that to someone, like I wanted to have that moment in a situation. And, and they said to me, they were like, you know, you might have that moment, but it's all ego. You know, your ego might get that, 
but it's not going to do anything. It's going to make you feel worse or you'll have to still pivot out of it. And I got that moment in my case as well. And you still have to let go of what you're holding so tightly. It's either not at all satisfying, you know, when you get the thing that you want or you realize you've lost the plot. <laughs> like you, you forgot the reason that you got started in the first place. So in a way, like, you know, the starving artist archetype, it's good because it, it can get it right that the art, the creative process is the most important thing. My ego. Your poor spited ego. Something I think is so interesting. I think we've talked about him um, studying right now to be a financial therapist. And one of the things, concepts that comes up a lot is when people are in survival mode, um, their cognition decreases. Like it kind of reminds me of diet culture when you're constantly thinking about how many calories you've ingested. Um, you don't have space in your brain to think about other things, to find other solutions or be creative or, I don't know, find enjoyment. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we both know. And it's kind of the same thing with money. You know, anyone who's struggled with money in the past or who's currently struggling with money, you know, it's it's sort of like always floats to the surface, your, your fear, your anxiety around where your next paycheck is going to come from. And it can make it really hard to focus on anything else. And if you are a creative person or an innovative person or an intuitive person and your job is to be this clear vessel, then that is not helpful. You know, if you really are are like sort of gripping from paycheck to paycheck, um, white knuckling it, then how can you really consistently find creative freedom? Because you're constrained by money just in a different way. Yeah. It's like this elephant in the room at all times where you can't really fully focus on anything else because someone said it to me once as the chakra system, which I don't really know too much about, but I remember, and it clouds your decision-making, you know, you're not going to make the correct decision for the art or the correct decision for yourself because you're going to be swayed more easily towards the financial decision or towards wanting to make the creative decision, but feeling like you need to make the yes. financial decision and you it's less freedom really. Yeah. But going back to the chakras, someone told me that, you know, if you move up the chakras, like they're, they become unblocked. Mm-hmm. Right. And the first one, which is your first chakra, which is related to safety, security, well-being, money, health, like just the basic, like, do you have somewhere to sleep tonight? Do you have food to eat? Do you just like the very, very basic, not like, you know, can you speak your truth? Like we don't care about any of <laughs> right. that. Just the first one. Without that one taken care of, none of the other ones can open yep. or be. And I don't know enough about the chakras. to. Yeah, it's like the hierarchy of needs. It's also like the, exactly. the chakra system is so similar to our kinetic chain. If you have dysfunction, your kinetic chain starts at your ankles and goes knees, hips, blah, 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 all the way up to the top of your head. So if you have dysfunction like in your ankle, that ripples up the rest of your body. And you can't fix your knee pain until you fix what's up with your ankle. It's the exact same thing as the chakra system. It's so interesting how like the energetic body and the physical body mirror mirror each other in that way. But it's a really good point. Like that is the most basic. (laughs) How could we possibly get to more like elevated level or advanced level if if that's not taken care of? And of course there are outliers. There are tons of people who are incredibly prolific creators who don't know where they're going to sleep tomorrow. And I would say that those people have really worked on fine-tuning that skill over many, many years, perhaps even decades. They are not worried and they're trusting in the universe or God that like they're going to land wherever they need to land and probably, you know, trusting in themselves too. 
And I would say for most of us, that feels nearly impossible, or at least for me. (laughs) I am not that chill. (laughs) I'm deeply not that cool. I got to know, like, when's dinner? You know? Yeah, we're going to get to this in the future as well. But I think we all have different thresholds for uncertainty Mm -hmm. and for struggle. And I think those thresholds change and shift the older we get and over time and just what's happening in our lives. But we have to first define that for ourselves. You know, I think that's something like in this part of the conversation that hopefully people are thinking of, of like, okay, where do you fall if it's a spectrum of needing some sort of basic safety and security to be able to be the clearest channel you can be? And if our goal, again, is to be this clear channel so that we can be prolific and make the work that we're here to make or do our sacred work, whatever it might be, the starving artist also stumbles a bit because they can lose the plot in just trying to be cool, you know, and trying not to sell out and making the most important thing being, I'm not a sellout. They basically end up saying, well, the most important thing is actually being as cool as possible, as being being as counterculture as possible, as opposed to not selling out because I want my art to be as authentic and pure. It's more, I don't want to sell out because I need to keep up appearances as this rebel. And that really can distract you from from the process because can I just say being creative is not sexy and cool. It is like the creative process, at least for me, is deeply unsexy. And in fact, embarrassing, like pretty earnest and um, cringe as the youth say. Yeah. It's so funny because that has been the a real huge thing that's held me back where I've been so like to your point earlier when you asked if I'm around artists, I feel like I'm around a bunch of cool artists. And when I first moved here, I was like, oh, I can't, I can't even do my work at all. I just I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I'm going to go. And what a shame. What a, to that, it feels very similar to what you were saying. Like, I really regret that time. And I look back on that of thinking like that really held me back in a way that I am happy to have finally been like, okay, this is this is it. It is earnest and this is what I'm doing. I feel that 100%. I have said this before, but 99% of the regrets of my life come from not dancing full out, literally and metaphorically, because I was too embarrassed. Like I was worried that I was going to look stupid. And oh my God, if I could have those moments back, if I could have those hours of my life back, I would do anything. But You know, like creating is embarrassing because like existing is embarrassing. Like being in a human body is inherently embarrassing and gross and weird. And if you're so like laser focused on like looking cool to other people, then yeah, what are you? What have you got left, man? I know. It's it's really sad. It's a bummer because you're you're closing yourself off for what you could do to be cool, to fit into a mold. And so much of this slacker culture starts in music and skateboarding and all of these very cool people trying to fit into a mold. And it's when we separate from the mold and do something different, that's when things can really take off Mm -hmm. and people can connect when you are being your most authentic and you're confident enough to share that. And I think it's it's changing a bit now where people care less or have decided to – or do you think that? Because in some ways, I think people have gotten to a place 
where, or maybe I'm just seeking this out, they've accepted, or I'll speak from the mm-hmm. eye. I'm trying to accept that I am warm. I am not cool. I am not elusive. I am not going to be an Olsen twin where you only know little bits about me. My voice is on several recordings on the internet at all times. Yeah. <laughs> and I am just here I am, you know, and instead of hoping to be something different, like just leading into that, do you think that there's a collective shift towards that? Yeah and no. I think that there's more ways that we can be creative now that are recognized, you know, that are like upstart ways, like making a YouTube channel, you know, that is a creative endeavor, coding an app or I don't know, making like weird posters to send to your friends or designing merch for a made-up company. Like there are so many ways to be creative, writing your own and publishing your own book. The democratization of creativity is like incredible. It's an incredible time that we live in. And we still live under the microscope of these like artificial lives that are on the internet for like looky-loos. And it's hard even when you really know yourself and you really like yourself or you've really worked on yourself, at least for me, to like have the presence of mind to be like, it's okay that people think I'm stupid. <laughs> like there's a lot of people that think a lot of things about me and, you know, okay. <laughs> I can't really change their mind no matter what I do. That's that's at least what I tell myself. I talk about it a lot on this podcast, but I don't know if it's like, if it's more, if people are more willing to look more embarrassing now or not. I think that people are more willing to maybe find a creative spark of something interesting that could have been mundane because I think brands are actually doing that. Like brands are more willing to partner with, let's say like a creative who just is going to make something interesting. Like who's going to make a Chase Bank commercial that's actually like really avant-garde because they might have a following and they might have people who really like them. And the bank is kind of like trying, Chase is trying to use the halo effect to like get in the good graces of other people. So I think that like maybe the lines are a little bit more blurry now, but I think that starving artist archetype still sort of bucks against, I guess it's capitalism is really what we're trying to like articulate. It's all or nothing against capitalism. When in reality, like we kind of don't have an option to opt out of capitalism, at least like wholly and completely. I guess what I was referring to in the shift is specific to sort of what you were talking about with Chase, right? Like that makes Chase cooler to it's a positive brand perception to them. But then what does that do to that cool artist that Chase hired for the music and the commercial? I think in the 90s, that's where this really was. And, you know, we've spoken about this before with slacker culture, with not selling out. That was such a huge theme with music in the 90s. And there's this podcast that I listen to and love, and they they often ask about people's syncs. They'll ask musicians, like, what are what was your biggest sync? Like, what did you sell out. And a lot of these musicians from the nineties will say like, oh, you know, I got $10,000 to do this or whatever, whatever. And then, or they say like, were there any that you wish you had done that you didn't? And I don't remember the band, but I remember they turned down, I think it was like a hundred thousand dollars to do some car commercial where now like they wouldn't think twice about that because the music industry has changed so much where it's so much more challenging to make music. But back then you could make more money in music. So selling out was perceived, the perception of that was so 
bad for the artist that they didn't want to do it. And that's the part that I do think has shifted just because of technology and the gatekeepers are gone. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's almost like, well, if you can't make it as like an artist who tours and sells albums, if the way that you're going to make money is by being in a Ford commercial, like, are you even that good? And the truth is like, yeah, (laughs) you can still be really good. And like, I don't know, not have your paintings in a gallery. That doesn't mean that you've made it, quote unquote, made it any more than anyone else because you're just, you're basically trading the acceptance or the acknowledgement of like the traditional industry for just like another more commercial industry. Like who cares? There's, it's like, which gatekeeper is going to accept you more? Like either way, that's actually like kind of antithetical to what the starving artist is about, you know, which is. I'm going to make my art for the sake of making art. Our perception or people's perception of us can't be our concern. That's something you've really taught me, Michelle. There's an episode from way back when where you spoke about how sometimes you look at creators or artists that you love and you like them and other times you're like, eh, I'm, this isn't for me. And sometimes you come back to them. And I think just keeping that in mind with everything of like, just do whatever you want to do and make money however you want to make money. Because even if you try to impress an audience, you still might make them mad. So you might as well do what works for you. Yep. Absolutely. Like they're still having a secret hidden dialogue with you. They're in an, a fight with you and you don't even know. <laughs> you and, and you haven't done anything wrong. It's just that like sometimes we reach capacity with a person or a creator or a conversation and we're just like the energetic agreement is like goes just for a little bit. And then maybe people come back to you. Whatever. To your point, yeah, you just have to like make your stuff. And I don't know. I think the last thing about the starving artist that just it really it's it's antithetical to the idea of making is that it asks us to wait 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 for the perfect thing like oh i can't sell out and take this job or i need to have the perfect idea or the perfect opportunity or the perfect environment or the perfect timing or the perfect person in order to make that thing and that's in life too like none of these things exist you can't wait for like the ultimate to to enter your life you just have to like do a bad first draft. <laughs> you just have to get started and go from there and know that like your process, the process of both living and making work, it's it's not finite and it's not final. It's like in constant flux. And I think that's the beauty of being a prolific person is that if you are worried about being perfect, about getting it exactly right, and you only write one book, it's a lot of pressure to put on that one book, right? If you're Agatha Christie and you write 300 books, guess what? You're not judged by that one book and getting that one book right. You are judged by the sum of your creative output, which like, you know, the average, it averages towards, you know, you're probably what you're trying to get across. You just get more opportunities to to play with whatever you want to play with. And I don't know. I would rather live in that world as someone who's a perfectionist because I would be terrified to make anything, to publish anything, to hit record on any podcast if I only had one chance to do it. Like if I only had one opportunity to explain myself or to excavate myself because the process ideally is like never ending, you know? Yeah. Or you end one cycle of it and you begin another one until until you die. Yes, exactly. It's a constant evolution. Yeah. 
So starving artist. There's some things it gets right and there are some things that, you know, are actually hurting us. If you still are a little bit on the fence and you're like, but I need to be noble. Okay. Agreed. No doubt. That's important. And there's probably maybe some new ways of thinking that we can open up and like leave behind, um, especially if your goal is to be a prolific person. Because like in some, it's pretty punk rock to care. Like it's pretty counterculture to care about the work that you do and to be earnest and to be embarrassing. Because I would say like generally people are not willing to go there. Couldn't agree more. Something for you to think about when it comes to putting your own starving artist archetype, perhaps on the shelf, perhaps in the closet for a little bit, but hopefully, you know, excavating your own starving artist and where they've come up for you or how it comes up for you in your own life has been illuminating and perhaps freeing to know that this isn't the only way to make things and to be noble in your process. In fact, like there are so many ways. Um, and actually, like there's so much access to creativity when we leave this starving artist archetype behind, when we start to potentially get paid for the work that we do or make our work more accessible, a whole world opens up to us. And that's what we're going to talk about in next week's episode, part two. So tune in then. And in the meantime, we'll see you on the internet. See you on the internet. See you next week. More soon. Bye. The Twelfth House is produced by me, Katie Dalebout, with theme music by Nathan McKay and edited by the incredible Softer Sound Studio, who you can find more information about in our show notes. 